I'm Kayla. And I'm Alicia, Kayla's mom, and you're listening to True Crime Exposed. today I was able to interview with Jan Canty. She is the wife of the victim in this case and she was able to give incredible insight and intuition into not only the case but what family members go through when a violent crime is committed. You can also hear about this case from Jan by buying her book, A Life Divided by Jan Canty, PhD. I use this book as a reference and you can find it on Amazon, Kindle, wherever you may get your books. You can also listen to it as an audiobook on Audible. I only used two sources today, this book, A Life Divided, and my personal interview with Jan Canty because she is dedicated to victim advocacy and talking about what families go through after a violent crime. She is sick of the murderers in these cases taking center stage, being the center of attention. And I'm right there with her. It's important to talk about the victims and their families. Jan said the media was relentless to her. She had a horrible time with the court system. At the time this happened in 1985, she explains in her book that journalists had more rights than the family members. There was no such thing as support for victims and their families. There were no notices of hearings. There were no victim advocates. And she wants us to all know that the story doesn't end when there is quote unquote justice because the families continue to live with it for the rest of their lives. She thinks the victims live in a vacuum. How often do you hear about the fallout of the homicide survivors, meaning the family members in these cases? In the beginning of her book, she asks, what do you know about what Travis Alexander's family has gone through, Ron Goldman's family? Do we talk about the families and what they experience through the trial and afterwards? Jan believes that these stories don't end at the trial. That's where they begin. All my information today comes from Jan Canty herself, Al's wife who lived this story, who is still living it and dealt with all the repercussions of what had happened. It was important to her that we do not focus on the murderers or the murder itself. So all the information I have for you about the people who committed this violent crime comes from Jan's book, A Life Divided. I did this to be 100% respectful of the way that Jan wanted this story told. And by taking from her book, I knew I was sharing things that she was okay with sharing. Because the media relished in sharing her story as a salacious story, a juicy story, because of all the elements it had. But these are real people we're talking about. These are real families torn apart. With that, are you ready? for today's case. So for this case, I was able to talk to Jan Canty and you will be hearing from her throughout this episode. And her insight is important because she is the wife of Dr. Alan Canty, Al for short, the victim in this case, but Jan is a secondary victim of this homicide. 
the victim of her husband's double life he was living and the victim of the criminals who took him away from her before she could ever even ask him a question about the things that had happened. So it's July 13th, 1985, when Jan Canty is at home. She's been waiting around for Al to make it there himself. He was always home for dinner by 6 p.m., but 6 p.m. has come and gone and he's still not here. And this is strange because that's just not like him. He was very punctual, he was reliable, and she wondered to herself, where could he be? The couple lived in a nice neighborhood called Gross Point, which was just outside of Detroit, Michigan. And at this time, around the 1980s, Detroit was super dangerous. Crime was rampant, street life was bustling, homicides were nearly 10 a week, which tripled the homicide rate in Chicago and New York. And many of these homicides went unreported. There was one third of Michigan's state budget that went to the Department of Corrections, and nearly 40% of Detroit city population was considered low income. There was corruption at an all-time high, and as that was spread throughout the city, the economy collapses and crime is on the rise. But all of that wasn't worrying Jan on this first night of Al Missing. They were both successful psychologists. They were not mixed up with the crime going on all around them in Detroit, where Al worked in a building on Fisher Street. And Jan was finishing up her postdoctorate fellowship there in the city as well. Now, although their business was in a dangerous area, their home was safe. They were disconnected from the crime-ridden streets. At least that's what Jan thought. So while the dinner Jan prepared for Al sat there untouched, she lost track of time watching this three-hour special on TV. And as that program wraps up, Jan looks outside to see if it's dark, realizing that she had lost track of time. And she's shocked because it's now far past the time Al was supposed to be there and her worry grows. Could he have been in an accident? There was a storm outside and this was so unusual. She just knew in her gut something had to be wrong. Well, oddly enough, the night, the first night he went missing and I was waiting for him, that night he was late for dinner, the strangest thing happened. It's only happened to me once in my entire life and that was the night I was waiting for him and pacing and I, I walked into his home office. This is about, I don't know, 11 o'clock or so at night and there was a raging thunder outside and I looked into the mirror in his office and I, and I said out loud, He's dead, he's not coming home, I know this. And when I heard myself say that, it was like, well, that was dramatic. He's probably bogged down in the rain. And I kind of like, what was I thinking? So I think a part of me suspected something, because it was so out of character for him. And this is back before the internet, back before cell phones, and so it was very difficult to have communication. So when he didn't show up and it was so out of character for him, he was very punctual. I immediately got concerned because it was so out of character and the storm. And he was three hours overdue. I called his answering service. I called hospitals. I called um, his parent, his mother. His father had died by then, so I called his mom's house. Um, there just wasn't anybody, any other place to call. So what I ended up doing about midnight is I asked my neighbor to take me downtown to his office to see if maybe if he was collapsed in there or something, because he was a lot older than me. And I did not want to go by myself because primarily I was pretty shook up. And secondly, it wasn't a very great neighborhood. And this was a neighbor who was a big, confident guy. And he said, sure, I'll drive you down there. So he did. 
And it was about midnight. We got into the office, and the only thing I could say that was a tad unusual, and it didn't jump out at me as a great deal of a, of a big deal, was that our offices were more tidy than normal. <laughs> Beyond that, I didn't see anything unusual, and so I just went home. The next day, Jan is so shook up by her husband not returning home and her not finding anything there at his office, so she goes to the police department near their business to report Alan Canty as missing. But of course, police tell her, no, we cannot take a report for your husband because he has not been missing for 24 hours. You just talked to him on the phone yesterday afternoon. That's just so bizarre to me because you know your husband. Like if my husband didn't call and tell me he was coming home, like I would know something's wrong. Yeah, exactly. I would know before 24 hours of him missing that something is wrong. Exactly. People know if their husband normally comes home at the night. Like if Jacob just never showed back up, same. I would go to the police right away and I would force them to take a report, which is basically what Jan does because she doesn't want to take no for an answer. She knows something has happened. She just doesn't know what. So she actually drives to a different police department with the knowledge that they apparently won't take a missing persons report before it's been 24 hours. So she walks in and she tells them she needs to file a missing persons report, telling them she had not seen her husband in more than 24 hours. Smart. She's like, oh, yeah, I'll show you guys. I'll go somewhere else. (laughs) I'm sure there's like a few police departments there in Detroit because it's probably so large. So she's like, all right, I'll just go to the next one. And they do take her report. So what I did is I went to another police station and I said, well, I haven't seen him in 24 hours, which was true even though I had heard from him by phone. But I said, I haven't seen him in 24 hours. I want to file a report. And they took it, but that was the end of that. And it didn't go anywhere immediately. And the way they did it was extra obnoxious. The guy wouldn't even look at me. He just kept looking at his television, his little pint-sized TV that he had on a, this desk. And it was he was watching a boxing match. I mean, I was a waste of his time, obviously. But I got out to the news, and they were on my footsteps and doorstep, and they were a nuisance from that day on. They were more harmful than helpful. As you heard, the media was relentless, and Jan is an advocate for treating the families of homicide victims with more respect to be less intrusive, to let people grieve. While she understands that there are cases out there who don't get the media attention they deserve, there's also a balance of not giving a story too much media attention, too much sensationalism. And that's exactly what the media did to her. Because Al's case had all the elements the media wanted for a juicy story. A fall from grace, a white well-off psychologist, betrayal, crime, and a brutal murder. But as the media blasted Al's story, Jan was left to pick up the pieces of herself, and we need to remember that as we go through this case. I had too much attention. It was on the front page. It was on the news, uh, evening news, and it was so invasive, so intrusive. Like for an example, they printed a map to my house on the front page of the Detroit News, and they started to drive by and take pictures and point. But as an example of how intrusive and how insensitive the media became, they showed up at his funeral. Well, I'm getting ahead of the story, but they showed up at his funeral and brought cameras and wires and lights, and it disrupted it. I mean, there was people there that got angry with them and asked them to leave, and it was just a sideshow. It was awful. 
Now, although it felt to Jan that police were doing nothing with her husband's missing persons case, she didn't know that there was more going on within the department than she had realized back then. Things she wouldn't have even thought at the time would aid in locating Al. What was truly going on behind the scenes is that the police, the Detroit Police Department, was receiving tips from confidential informants. I'd had no knowledge of this till many years later. But the, the reason they had cooperation was because the man who murdered my husband, John Carl Fry Sr., was so hated in his community that they got unprecedented police cooperation. That normally did not happen. But they saw this as a chance to get rid of him, and they were right. Well, and it does seem like they know more behind the scenes than they let people know. Yeah, like definitely more than they let the public know. And I also think more even families than families. Yeah. Once Jan reported her husband as missing, she quickly lets her parents know that she did this and they feel that they need to be there with her. At this point, they live in Phoenix, Arizona, and she's over there in Detroit, Michigan. Her parents arrive promptly and they start helping take care of her. She's a nervous wreck, and she doesn't know what's going on. She can't sleep. She can't eat. She just wants to know where Al is. Soon, Jan would get a small sliver of information that gives insight into her husband's disappearance. It's a Sunday morning when Gail Hill with the Detroit Police Department calls Jan and asks her to come into the station. Of course, she'll head right over, and she asks her parents to come with her, And then as a trio walks into the doors of the police department, they are met by Marla Landeros. She's also a police officer there at the Detroit Police Department. And she's someone that Jan trusted, an officer who was there for Jan through some of her toughest moments and always knew the right words to use during these times. Landeros ushers Jan and her parents into a waiting room. And as they sit there in the chairs, anxiously wondering what they've been called in for, Jan is just staring at the wall across from her. It's filled with posters of missing children, and it feels so unreal that she is even sitting there waiting for information on her own missing loved one. Gil is a huge part of Jan's story, and just like Landeros was there for some of her worst memories, so was he. He was in his 50s and at the prime of his career when Alan Canty goes missing. Gil was from Birmingham, Alabama and had joined the Air Force when he grew into adulthood. Soon he passed the aviation test but then was denied by the Air Force. They claimed this was because he had missing teeth. However, it seemed to be more tied to the fact that he was a person of color. But he didn't let the discrimination derail his life. Instead, he got a job with the Detroit Police Department as one of their first black police officers. And if you've ever seen the movie series Beverly Hills Cop, Gil, he actually gained recognition in this series for his role as Inspector Todd. If you were to watch Beverly Hills Cop 1, the opening scenes were filmed then at that time by Eddie Murphy. And Inspector Todd, who was his boss in the movie, is the inspector I dealt with in real life, who's Inspector Gil Hill. And he's just the same in real life as he was in the movie, real short and to the point. So when Jan walks into Gil's office, she is accompanied by Officer Landeros. At this point, her parents are waiting outside of the office when Gil tells Jan that Al had actually gotten involved with some dangerous groups of people. Quote, we found your husband's name and address in an alley house on Casper Street. End quote. 
she's confused. Like, what is he talking about? Her husband is a psychologist with a doctorate degree. He works all the time. He wasn't involved with any dangerous groups. He was home every night for dinner by 6 p.m. But then Gil goes on to ask Jan if she was suspicious of any money problems. She's a little taken back because, yes, he was hospitalized just a bit ago and she did find some unpaid bills. But she tells Gil she doesn't understand what this has to do with Al being missing. It's at this point she wants her parents to join her in Gil's office. So they come in and Jan goes on to explain to Gil that Al had called her around 3 p.m. on the day that he never returned home. And he had told her he would be home by 7 at the latest. They have this brief conversation surrounding the storm before hanging up the phone just after Jan tells him to be safe. But Gil's next question shocks her again when he asks if she's recently been followed. Because yes, she actually had been twice. Well, once is for sure, but the other she wasn't positive about. The first time she had noticed headlights behind her when driving home at night. And every turn she made, so did they. She was freaked out enough that once she reached the street to her home, she decided to drive right past her house and instead went to a brightly lit store. She didn't know if she was being overly dramatic about that car, like, was it really following her, but it's better to be safe than sorry. I've done this before. Not gone to a store, but I've drove past my house. Oh. Like, if there's a car behind me for a while, I just go past my house and just do some circles in the neighborhood and then go back. <laughs> Have you? Make sure it's not following you. <laughs> yeah, like... I don't recall that I've ever felt like I've been followed. Oh. <laughs> uh, But, you know, she wanted to be better safe than sorry, and then she's not sure. It didn't startle her that bad because, again, no one followed her home from the store. But only three weeks before Al went missing, there was definitely someone following her, and she knew this because they were being aggressive, speeding up close to her bumper and then backing off over and over again. She didn't understand why, but she didn't like it, so she had sped up quickly, and when she came to a bend in the road, she shut her lights off. This way, the car couldn't see her as easily as she quickly raced to her house. Once she got there, she turns sharply into her driveway. Her car was able to be slightly hidden behind a hedge, and she shut it off immediately, giving the appearance that it was just a parked car with no one in it. The car had come by, stopped at her neighbor's, and then continued on. She remembered that the car following her made this horrible noise. She thought that maybe it had a bad muffler. Some other randomly weird things had happened to her over the last couple months. A couple calls in the middle of the night of a man asking for a woman, and then there was that stranger who stopped by Jan's house. She was gardening outside when that person asks if Dr. Canty lived there. And at one point, she finds three cigarettes used and discarded on her windowsill. Neither her or Al smoked, so she's wondering whose they could be. All of those are super creepy. Did she call the cops? I don't know if the, all those incidents were bet- like right when people were following her, because I know that one where someone was really aggressive was just three weeks before Al goes missing. But I think it was like over the span of a f- couple months that she's noticing these little things. And she wrote in her book that she felt that it was a weird sign of something going on, but that her husband just kind of dismissed it. Like nothing's going on, just a weird coincidence. 
And then she, of course, kind of as he dismisses it, she kind of questions herself and in the moment thinks maybe it's nothing, but hindsight is twenty twenty when she's looking back to these memories from the future. Now it's in the middle of telling Gil about the cars following her that she stops herself asking again, what does this have to do with my missing husband? And it's then that Gil utters the words that would change Jan's life forever. Quote, I feel in my gut that your husband is dead due to circumstantial evidence, but we haven't found his body yet. End quote. And Jan goes weak. She can't stand. Her legs aren't strong enough to carry her. What do they mean? They think he's dead, but they haven't found his body. And then there's circumstantial evidence. Was Al murdered? Yeah, like give the details. Yeah, and I don't think they do at this point. She's just kind of left wondering. They called me in twice. The first time was to basically tell me that they had suspicions he'd been murdered, but they did not yet have his body. And this is back when they needed that because DNA wasn't what it is today. And that they recommended that I go home and check my bank account because he'd been observed handing out money, cash, in the inner city, which made no sense to me. So I went home and checked, and not only did we not have money, we were in debt. Jan's parents are visibly upset, and their eyes fill with tears as they're torn apart wondering how to support their daughter. She's being told that her husband of 11 years has been murdered, so they drive her home and she starts to grieve. Her mind is racing with questions that can't even be answered yet, and her world crumbles around her while she waits for more information from the police. So let's step into the past and talk about how Jan and Al started their relationship. Jan had been attending community college for her freshman year, but as sophomore year approached, she applied at Wayne State University, which is in South Central Detroit. She was ecstatic to find out that she was accepted for that sophomore year. And upon learning this information, it's one of her high school friends that tells her she knows of a psychologist who needs a typist. And his office was nearby Wayne State University. It would be perfect. His name is Dr. Canty. So it's the spring of 1972 when Jan calls Dr. Canty's office. I heard you're hiring a typist. I want to apply. How do I do this? And she ends up scoring an interview. She's nervous as she drives there. She desperately needs this job because it's right there by her campus. She's broke because she's in college and it's a perfect opportunity. So he was quite a bit older than her? Yes, he's actually 18 years older than her. Wow. Yeah. So like double you and Shannon. (laughs) Because Shannon's nine years older than you. Doesn't seem like it. I know. Age doesn't matter, I guess, when you fall in love, right? Do you know Shannon also lived in Detroit? He did for schooling at some point. I'll have to ask him about it because when was he there? Well, I'm guessing he graduated around 1987 from from high school. So he was kind of there like right after this. Well, probably four years after. So I'll have to ask him what he thought about the danger there. (laughs) He'll tell you. I know what he thought. Oh. It was dangerous. He, it was. He said it was scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I don't know what it would be like. Somewhere else. I know we like live in a bubble. Idaho. Like, <laughs> it's not that dangerous. <laughs> of course, bad things happen everywhere, but even Utah. Not the same kind of crime. Yeah. And I, at that time, was a student not knowing how I was going to pull it off financially at a nearby university, and I was looking for work that was relatively close. So it worked out great. I made $80 a week. My, my apartment was $80 a month. 
Now, that was back in 1985, but it was not in a great neighborhood. I put my bed below the window so the gunfire would not come through the glass. It had rats. It wasn't fun, but it was something I had to do to get to my goal. So when Jan arrives for her interview, she feels like the building is out of her league. It's luxurious inside. It's beautiful. But when she walks into Alan Canty's office specifically, her intimidation dies down slightly. His office is not decorated with the nicest furniture and decor. He actually seems slightly disorganized and he's a bit awkward. They get to talking about the job and within 20 minutes, he offers Jan the position. It's not long after she starts working as his typist that he promotes her with a raise to be his receptionist. Throughout her time working for him, she is drawn to him regardless of that 18-year age difference. No one was as supportive of her education as Al was. He was always telling her that she could do it, that she should do it. He would often tell her, quote, it's 90% persistence and 10% gray matter, end quote. By gray matter, he was referring to the brain, and this always made Jan laugh. He made her feel supported. He was the first person who seemed to genuinely care about her education. Now, with being 18 years older, he is closer to 40 at this time in his life, and he had been married before. He was now divorced, but he spoke very highly of his ex-wife. He appreciated his ex's intuition and talked about how smart she was. And Jan appreciated the respect he had for his ex. It was good to see him talk kindly about the people who he was previously with. So when Jan had started school, she originally was interested in writing children's books. Eventually, Al was such an influence on her that she decided she also wanted to go into psychology. As their relationship in work grew, they decided to start seeing each other outside of work. Soon they were dating and Jan would take Al to meet her parents. They were not in Arizona at the time Al and Jan started dating. They lived nearby there in Michigan. And Jan's parents overall liked Al. They were not worried about the age difference, but what gave them pause was Al's tendency to lie. They just noticed little lies here and there, lies about little things that didn't really even matter. But everyone just brushed it off. Now, meeting Al's parents was far more complicated. He was nervous about introducing Jan to them. They would plan it and then he'd back out. And then the first time she actually did come face to face with his parents, he introduces her as someone who works for him. She was, of, of course, taken back. She's mad. She's like, hello. Are you embarrassed of me? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly how she felt. So eventually she does actually meet his parents as his girlfriend. And she realizes why he was so nervous. They immediately start questioning her intensely, asking about her parents, her ambitions. Not only was she uncomfortable, but she could tell Al was as well. And she explains in her book that it was a relief to leave their home. Were they just those type of parents that had big expectations? Yeah, so Al is the only child. And Jan said that he grew up really needing to maintain his this image, which really kind of goes into everything that happens and why he does have this slight tendency to lie because he's really big about keeping appearances even though there's a side to him that wants to kind of like be on the more seedy side. I wasn't particularly comfortable with them and that only got worse over time. They were very formal, very stiff 
and they did not appreciate the fact that I didn't come from money and that I was younger than him. They, I think they thought I was a gold, a gold digger or something. Yeah, well, I thought it was weird when you said that um, her parents noticed that he did these little white lies. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm... that's like, who notices? Like, yeah, like, people aren't going to, like, why tell these little lies? Exactly. I feel like you can always tell when someone's just kind of, like, slightly a liar. Like, they just exaggerate things or, like, <laughs> <laughs> but they're, like, making things up kind of for like a good story or something and that's just kind of what he did and Jan does think it has a lot to do with how he grew up the expectations his parents had so maybe he like over exaggerated like by thinking differently like um no like I think he actually lied yeah an old high school friend of his said he who I knew but didn't know him during high school said that he always had an attraction to the seedy side of things, like James Dean, the bad boy kind of thing back then, and always had to have something on the side. But one of the things, actually two of the things that I read that helped me make sense of what happened, one was that this book where they said for people to live a double life, they must have been forced to do it as a child, which was true because his parents were very into appearances. Everything has to be pristine on the outside and formal and, and very... Uh, detailed but inside they they would yell at him and call him names and never never physically abusive but never were proud of him and always getting him out of trouble so if he got a speeding ticket they'd they'd pay it off and so it wasn't as it appeared on the outside he did lead a double life crumbing up because he could not be openly oppositional to his family they wouldn't put they didn't even they don't believe in disagreeing but subtly he could be that way by having this other side to him that they would not know about and disapprove of if they had known. That's one point. The other point to keep in mind, and this is especially true for women, I think, but it does apply to men as well, is that we trust to our default, meaning that if you are basically a trusting person, you you are more likely to put that trust on other people and think they're going to treat you like you treat them. If your default is being distrust, distrusting and, and somewhat cautious, then that's your default, and that's how you're going to treat other people. So I came into this with the viewpoint of trusting him. If he said he was going to be late, I didn't question where he was. If he said he had to pay a bill and we were tight on, fun, on funds, which didn't happen very often, I didn't grill him like, well, why not? You know, I just trusted him. I mean, after all, we were living in a nice house. He'd been in practice for years. There was nothing, No, nobody came to the house saying you're late on payments. And our electricity had never been turned off. There was nothing that would raise a red flag. And I think women are pre-groomed for people like that because we're told to trust. We're told to defer and to uh, basically see the good in people and to give them a second and a third and a fourth chance. As their dating progresses, Jan was about 22 years old and Al was about 40 years old, and she thought long and hard about if they could have a future. She contemplated the fact that in her 60s, she would likely be a widow since he was so much older than her, but she accepted it because she loved him. She was happy and proud to be his girlfriend. He was an educated man who was attentive, who supported her. He never spoke unkind words to her. He was impressive, and she very much loved his bashful smile. She loved that they had special outings together. Both Lily's and Dominique's were restaurants the couple would often eat at, and it felt like these spots were theirs, places where they built this relationship. 
She knew she wanted to spend the rest of her life with with him. So it's over breakfast one more morning that she proposes to him, asking him to marry her. His face lights up with a smile and he replies asking her when. So she picks up a fork and she stabs it into a calendar, putting it on a Saturday in the fall. He is excited and he tells her, quote, if you think I'll be good to you, you're right, end quote. Jan smiles. This is perfect. I get to be with the man I love. What could go wrong? So ended up, ended up we got married the following year after that. And we were ma- we'd never had children. We were married 11 years. Uh, one of the things that really drew me to him, besides the fact that I thought he was very bright, was he was so supportive of my education. Nobody ever had done that in my entire life, nobody. My school counselors, my parents, nobody. And he was like, well, of course you can do it. Of course you can go to college. Of course you can go to grad school. Like, it's like it was nothing, you know? And that was very refreshing, and it was a very intense goal of mine. So that drew me to him even more. So it's about a week after Gil calls her in to tell her he thought Al had been murdered that he calls her in again. The second time she goes to the police station, she is hit with news she could never have saw coming. She's told that Al's body had been found. Not only was he murdered, but he was dismembered and his body buried far away from where they lived. And this was done to him by John Carl Fry, a career criminal, a drug dealer, and a pimp, which I'm going to call a sex trafficker because that's what they are, And John also had an accomplice, Dawn Marie Spence. She was the sex worker who Jan's husband, Al, had been involved with for the last 18 months. Mm. And she did not expect that. It hits her like a ton of bricks. She thinks to herself, it could not be true. Involved with a sex worker and a criminal, involved with drugs, had given them money. Like there's no way her husband was an like doing this because he was an upstanding citizen again he was home every night for dinner they had to be wrong and then they called me back a week later and said you have to come down to police headquarters again and I did and it was at that point that they told me that they had his body in the morgue because a confidential informant had cooperated with them they'd flown up to where his body had been buried in northern Michigan near Canada Um, and flew the body parts back into the morgue and then asked me to, well, told me, to go and identify him, which they don't do much anymore because, again, DNA being what it is. In my mind, the way I was receiving it, it was so disjointed and disbelievable, unbelievable, that it didn't soak in. It was like, they're wrong. It, it, it It doesn't make sense to me. I mean, my husband was not a player. He was, he was... He had his nose in a book all the time. He smoked a pipe. He was at home at, for dinner at 6.30. I mean, he, he did, we didn't go out. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. So I'm like, what? This doesn't make any sense. And I, I just kind of took, took it with a grain of salt. I'm like, they're going to tell me that they're wrong. That's what's going to happen. It really took a long time, I mean, like a couple years, for it to sink in because it just and, and they were only sketching it in for me. They they were so busy. I mean, that year alone, they had like 900 homicides to deal with. I was one of many, and so they did not hold my hand or spend much time with me at all. It was like boom, boom, we got to move on. And so, it was very sketchy and very unbelievable. And I just couldn't. I didn't know what to make of it for a long time. 
So at this point, were they not working together anymore? So Jan is going through school this whole time. So she was a psychologist, but she's working. So she was doing a fellowship program. She was actually three weeks away from completing her fellowship program when he goes missing. So she was focusing on school and she wasn't working at his office anymore. It sounds like she was working on her own personal practice, but... Oh, like working for him. Yeah. So then she ends up, as she gets more through school, I think she stops working for him. Starts working as a psychologist because she gets her degree. So they're both working as a psychologist. I think she ends up working. Because I was wondering how how he could have this second life. When she's there as like his receptionist. Yeah. No, at this point, like she's not his receptionist anymore. She's not his typist. She goes to school. She's a psychologist herself. I think she got a postdoctorate degree or whatever, whatever that means. And that actually is kind of one of the things that started driving a wedge between them because she starts going to school. I think it's pretty common that like a lot of times men have a hard time if like their wife is working a lot or like is more educated and not that it should be, but I think it's just like a hard dynamic sometimes. We had offices adjoining each other, but we never occupied them because I was just finishing my do- my postdoctoral fellowship when he went missing. So we never actually did that. But what I think happened in retrospect is that I not only got a master's and a doctorate, but ended up going back and getting a postdoctoral fellowship, which was more medi- more education than he had, and he didn't appreciate that. And that was our eventual undoing. The things police are telling Jan about her husband aren't sitting right with her. She's not even really taking it in because the shock she feels in this moment is beyond anything she's ever experienced before. It's a Sunday, July 21st, when she had gone back into the police department to talk to Gil for that second time. And a detective hands her his watch, asking her if she recognizes it. Her heart sinks because it is Al's. There's a broken link in the band of the watch, and he had broke it while unloading the paving bricks he collected over the years to create their beautiful brick driveway. Al had worn this watch for the last eight years, and she held it close and was reminded of the man she once loved, a symbol of their happier days. Soon, she's handed a Polaroid of a burned abandoned sedan sitting on railroad tracks. She says she doesn't recognize it before realizing that it was Al's car, stripped and burned. Jan's mind is racing when they say to her, we have body parts in the morgue. With those words, the air felt like it left the room while Jan struggles to keep breathing. They were telling me that he'd been seen in the red light district of Detroit down on Casper Street, handing out money to various people, helping them with their broken down cars. He was uh, having a, a friendship with John Carl Fry. John Carl Fry lived with a prostitute, and he, they suspected that he had been with her, and that he was supporting their lifestyle, feeding them, giving them drugs or drug money, paying their rent, buying them groceries. And I'm like, this not, it doesn't make sense. After being bombarded by worse news than she could have ever even thought up, she is told she has to come to the morgue to identify her husband's body. They tell her that it is without a doubt Alan Canty, but her identification is needed for the inevitable court date once they arrest the conspirators who killed him. 
Jan has her parents with her and they are taken into the building, a building filled with smells of cleaner and formaldehyde. It's a smell so distinct. Jan's dad had tried to take on the horrific burden of identification, but law enforcement refused. It had to be Jan for the trial. Well, my dad offered and they wouldn't allow it. And I didn't understand then, but I think in retrospect, the reason for that was because they wanted me to be able to testify in court what I had seen, because that's the question, the line of questioning when I was subpoenaed was to talk about what I saw at the morgue. And I think that was to make an impact on the jury or the judge and if it was a bench trial. So Jan's mom is taken into a room to wait and Jan is led down the hall and placed in front of a wall. When Detective Landeros tells her that behind this wall, she will see the face of a man and she needs to tell them if it is her husband. Detective Landeros stands on one side of Jan while her father supports her on the other side as she walks into that room. The first thing that Jan notices when she walks into the room is the odor that filled the air. Al had been buried at this point for about a week. So the smell was undeniable and caused Jan to quickly shut her eyes as a reflex. When she opens her eyes, she is met by the face of her husband. There's a sheet around his neck because it had been severed from his body. Mm. Bruises and cuts covered his face. He was almost unrecognizable. However, she could tell that it was in fact Al. The brutality of what he had faced was very apparent to Jan as she gazed down at the husband she once loved, who would never be coming home again. She felt sick to think about what he had gone through in those last moments of his life. All she had to do was say yes or no. Yes, this is her husband, or no, it's not. But she couldn't say it. She couldn't get the words out. This did not feel real. And there was this long pause before she was finally able to mutter out, a yes. Now she was able to be taken from that room filled with despair and heartbreak. But as she's being led back to the front of the building, Detective Landeros notices that the media had been tipped off. And they're, of course, out front waiting for Jan's exit to bombard her with questions after facing the worst moment of her life. But Landeros is a badass, so she quickly turns Jan around escorting her out the back so that the media couldn't intrude on this private moment of trauma. So I was half prepared for it, but I was not prepared for the manner in which he died. And he'd been buried for a week, and it was pretty awful. So they led me into there, and Detective Landeros was at my side. My father, she allowed him in to be with me. And all they had me do was say yes or no. They didn't ask me anything else. But they had to have it repeated. I couldn't talk. I, I remember that. And I had to start over. And they were very patient. And then I left. And I was trying to get out of the building. But the media had already assembled on the doorstep. How they got, they must have had an inside informant of some kind. Because this was Sunday at 7 in the morning. So now Jan is headed home with her parents. All of them were shaken. They're heartbroken. They are emotionally exhausted. But that exhaustion was one of the only things helping Jan move through these moments, moments that were more terrible than anything she could have ever imagined going through. She felt a blanket of protection having her parents there with her. They had taken Jan home and they asked her to sleep. She needed rest now that the worry of Al being missing has turned into the grief of loss. Loss of Al, loss of the life she had been living, loss of the image she had of who her husband was. 
one of the things that helped me at that moment is fatigue. I was so tired, I hadn't slept in much in a week. So I was very dull in my thinking and almost like robotic. I mean, I, thank God my father was there and my mom because I trusted them with anything. And Detective Landeros, I was, I was becoming quickly trusting of her as well. And so they were very helpful to me. So I, I was not super alert. I was very tired, very much in shock. And I think that dulled it somewhat. Now comes the daunting task of being the one responsible for spreading the information to Al's family and friends of what had happened to him. But her parents can see on her face that this wasn't a responsibility she could take on right now. She'd been through too much in the past week. And they told her that while she rested, they would visit Al's mom, Gladys. She needed to be told the news of her son's murder in person. So Jan's dad, Lee, decides to call over to warn her that they are coming over. We heard earlier from Jan that Al's father had already passed away by this time. So Lee had told Gladys on the phone that she needed to have her friend Edna come over to their house. They knew she would need some support from someone she cared about through the horrible news that her son had been living a double life and that those people he was running with had murdered him. Um, We got back to my house and they recommended that we tell his mother. And my dad said, we're gonna do it for you. Just go take a shower and go to bed. Jan was reeling from the news as the days go on. She is heartbroken in so many different ways. Not only was she grieving the loss of her husband, she was also grieving their relationship and what she thought it was. While going through the trauma of having her husband murdered, she was also experiencing that secondary trauma of finding out that Al had been cheating on her for over a year by paying Don Spens for sex, that he had put everything they had on the line for this other woman. It was a different kind of trauma to find out about this side of him. And these two traumas didn't seem to go together cohesively. I asked Jan about this during my interview with her. Throughout this podcast, I have interviewed survivors themselves, mothers, fathers, siblings, and experts. But I haven't interviewed a spouse, let alone a spouse who finds out about a betrayal after their partner is already gone. And I have always wondered how that would feel. Would you just immediately forgive the cheating and betrayal and lies because you are so devastated by the death? No. I've never been able to wrap my mind around it. Jan was able to explain these feelings to me perfectly. Not only did she live through this exact experience, but she's a psychologist herself. And what she has come to learn is that in these days, she was experiencing what is called conflicted grief. I did not know the name for it then, but now I know the name of what I was going through is called conflicted grief. And conflicted grief means you there is some relief in your grief. There's a part of you that's glad it's over. And you can't say that publicly, that's too taboo. So you go through the motions of being the grief. And, and I think people in other walks of life have this too. If you have an elderly parent who you're caring for, who's dying and who's in pain, when they die, there's some relief in that because they're, they're not suffering anymore. That doesn't mean you want to go out and celebrate the fact that they've died, but there is conflicted grief there as well. But I felt at the time, I didn't know the name for that. I'd never heard of it. I just know that I felt fake. I felt like I'm so infuriated with him, yet I have to go through this funeral and I have to sell the house and be polite and jump through all these hoops. And I, I thought if I could bring him back, I'd choke him to death. I was so mad. Like, how dare you? 
How dare you put your life and my life in jeopardy? For what? For no reason whatsoever. And you don't see a Hallmark card about conflicted grief. <laughs> so it really makes you feel like you're odd. So how did Al come to this point? What led him into leading this secret life and how did he go about it? Well, we have to go back to the beginning to get a clear picture of what had happened. This is something that took Jan years to do. In the whirlwind of this, Jan couldn't even begin to think about finding the answers to all she had been told. The stuff that didn't make sense to her had to be left at that for now. She wasn't in a place to put all the pieces back together. Jan was having to talk to the police. She's planning a funeral. Soon she would be subpoenaed to court. On top of all of that, she had found out she was in debt. She had to sell her beautiful large home in Gross Point that she loved so much. And she still had to work through her grief. It would take many years before she could dive into what exactly happened to their marriage, to Al, and everything he was involved with. I was so in a survival mode right away. I mean, I had bills. My physician, um, my mentor asked me to go see my physician because I wasn't sleeping and he wanted me to get something to help me sleep, which I was averse to, but I relented. And he gave me a very small dose of Xanax and I slept 16 hours the first night. So I'm in survival mode. And so my point being that I didn't have time. It was a luxury to grieve. It would have been a luxury to put the pieces of the puzzle together. That just was not priority. My priority was getting my physical health together, getting the bills paid, figuring out my next step, dealing with the media, dealing with how I was going to have an income, <laughs> selling my house. I mean, I had so many irons in the fire that that was all way pushed on the back burner. Let's go back to the beginning of their story and work our way through it. Jan and Al had a simple wedding ceremony, nothing too fancy. It was just right. She wore her mother's satin wedding dress and reveled in the happiness she felt marrying the man she looked up to and loved. Following their wedding, the pair was too busy for a honeymoon. How could they take the time for a vacation when Jan was in grad school and Al was working full time? So they'd push the honeymoon until sometime after school, when they felt settled and on a successful but less time-consuming path. In the meantime, Jan continues following her dreams, excelling in school and using her spare time to take care of their home and gardening outside. It was after their marriage that all of Jan's family started to move away from Michigan. Her parents retire over to Phoenix, Arizona, where they could soak in the sun rays, and her siblings go out west. It's always hard when you end up having to be far from family, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this was true for Jan especially since Al's parents never welcomed her in. Regardless of their years together, she says in her book, A Life Divided, quote, the Canty family was limited to enrollment of three, end quote. Wow. Yeah, Gladys had always called her Little Janny, which seemed somewhat belittling. Oh. Mm -hmm. Sure, she was 18 years younger than her husband Al, but that didn't matter at this point. They were married, they were happy, and then her father-in-law, Al Sr., was somewhat complicated. While his wife was very proper and would never use profanity, he was the opposite. Al was a forensic psychologist for the Detroit police, but he didn't gain his position through a degree. He was self-trained, working his way into this position. Jan recalls in her book that in 1951, Al Sr. had made headlines when he gave a lecture on child sexual predators. But instead of blaming predators for a child's trauma... He focuses on neurotic mothers, bad school teachers, and how damaging they are to the children. 
It seemed strange. Yeah. Yeah. Jan just always felt that it was a home where standards and expectations were irrationally high, that no one could live up to them. And even though the couple didn't hang any family photos in their home, nor had deep conversations with one another, she still always felt like an outsider, a trespasser when she was at her in-laws. Again, I think this is important to be explained because it seems that Al did feel a lot of pressure to present himself in this certain way. His childhood was likely a factor into his deceitful tendencies and the secrets he would end up keeping. But regardless of Jan's disconnect with Al's parents, they were able to enjoy their marriage together. Sunday mornings is when they would sit in each other's company. Their dinner dates felt like home, and she felt a safe haven as Al supported her through school. But it's as she continues on with school that education started to seem like too much to Al. It was going on for too long now. Jan was so busy. And once Jan reaches the level Al was at, when she becomes Dr. Jan Canty, the second Dr. Canty in their home, a psychologist herself, he's a little taken back. As we heard earlier, she didn't want to end there. She wanted to do a postdoctorate, so she could be double credentialed in both psychology and family therapy. She thought it was a great idea because this time there would be no tuitions. She would actually be earning a stipend at the medical campus to cover that tuition. Al isn't on board. He tells her that if he didn't need a degree like that, well, then neither did she. But he's not going to actually stop her from doing it. So when she decides to continue on, he's all of a sudden not Jan's number one cheerleader anymore through her education. He changes to being unenthused, disappointed, and avoiding the topic. But Jan's able to push that to the side. She was excited when she was accepted into the postdoctorate program because it only accepted three students a year. She would be working on the Detroit Medical Campus, which was the largest campus in the country at that time. She was thriving. She felt in her element. But she didn't see the silent drift between her and Al because he kept it to himself that he wanted to be needed by her. He wanted to be in control. It was during year nine of their marriage that Jan becomes super sick. She's feeling lethargic and down to the point that she is now reducing her hours in her fellowship program. She could not go on like this. She needed the energy to finish her degree, to complete her lifelong goal, and chase the career she had been dreaming of. So she goes to the doctor who diagnoses her with mono. This doctor is like, okay, Jan, you need a break. You're working 10 hours a day in a hospital while you have this weakened immune system. You're exhausted. You're overdoing it and you are not going to get better unless you take a break. I suggest you head to Arizona, spend some time with your parents in the sun and getting some rest and don't come home until you feel better. But Jan, she's like, she doesn't want to do this. It's almost Al's 50th birthday. She doesn't want a break from the fellowship. But with a little more push from her doctor and support from Al, she agrees, thinking, you know, it is best if she's healthy to continue on with her busy schedule. She feels bad that she's going to miss Al's big birthday. He's turning 50. But he doesn't like seeing her lethargic like this. He is okay with her going to Arizona. And with that, Jan is off for some needed vitamin D mixed with lots of sleep. It's on Al's 50th birthday that he visits his parents' home. His wife was gone. He was alone. 
so he at least wanted to see his mom and dad. And Gladys surprises him with $500 for the big day. And in that moment, the lustful side of Al gets an idea that would change his life forever, an idea on how to spend that money. After visiting with his parents, Al is now alone when he heads three miles south to what Jan calls a, quote, promised risk and guilty pleasure. He promised he would behave better in the future, but not that night, end quote. Wow. So while Al's wife Jan is in a different state sleeping off her sickness, he goes searching for a woman interested in selling her body to him for the night. Mm. And he passes a young girl, a five foot four petite girl named Dawn. Al pulls to the side of the road and introduces himself under the alias Dr. Al Miller instead of his actual name, Dr. Al Canty. And then he asks Dawn if she's working. She takes a peek into his car, noticing that it's nice, it's clean, but decides that she doesn't think he's a cop. So she tells him yes, she is working, and she agrees to go with him to the Temple Hotel, a hotel where the rooms were rented by the half hour for $50. When Al returns home that night of his birthday, he makes a call to Jan, who had taken medicine and was fast asleep. It's the middle of the night over in Arizona, and she was needing this rest. But she hears her phone ringing, so she picks it up, feeling like it's the least she can do since she wasn't there with Al for his birthday. And when she says hello, Al replies with, you should be asleep. Not knowing that Jan had been asleep, but awoke to his call. She just feels bad she missed his birthday, and he seems like he had tears. Was he crying? He doesn't normally cry on the phone with her. So she apologizes and asks him if he was able to do anything special for himself. Not knowing that he really did do something quote unquote special for himself. A truly selfish act of betrayal. And then my physician said, I want you to have AIDS testing too. Because AIDS had just come out. The ELISA test, which is a blood test, had just been discovered uh, and released like two weeks prior to this. AIDS was a death sentence. Uh, There was very little information on how it was transmitted, but they did know it was heaviest among drug-using IV prostitutes. So that was humiliating. And I'm I'm sitting there looking at the nurse when she's double-gloved with like how you would dress for COVID testing today. And I'm thinking, if prostitution is a victimless crime, why am I here, you know? And that was humiliating. So then I had to wait on the results. And when they finally came back, he told me they were negative, but he said, keep in mind, the test is brand new. It's not going to be perfect. And there's bound to be false positives and false negatives. So he wanted me to have it repeated every year for seven years. So I lived with that over my head. And then the bills, and oh my God, we were, we turned out we were... $30,000 in debt in 1985, which is closer to like three times that today. I owed money to the IRS. I owed money on the house, back rent, you name it. Everything was overdue. But of course, he doesn't tell Jan that. He just says he went out. He went out to Chung's for dinner. This was a place that Jan didn't like. He knew that Jan found that restaurant to be dangerous and in a bad part of the city. But she's sick and it's his birthday She felt so bad that he had to be alone on his birthday that she doesn't protest it. She doesn't argue with him about it. Not realizing that he was very much not alone through his birthday celebration. He sounded so worried to Jan. 
and it gave her this little ping in her heart. No one likes to be long distance from their life partner. That phone call made Jan miss Al even more than she already had. Thankfully, her restful trip didn't have to go on for too long. After 10 days of recovery, she was feeling better and started to plan a trip home. And on December 14th, Al picks up his wife from the Detroit Metro to bring her home. Once Jan returns, she goes through some hard challenges with her body that play a role into Jan and Al never having children together. This encourages her to focus on her fellowship and reduce her working hours at the Fisher Street building. She could see the future in her grasp, and she was excited to continue this journey with her husband by her side. That first night Al had been with Dawn, he was probably full of excitement afterwards. Maybe a little mixture of regret in there for betraying his wife. Doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what he did not feel was fear because he didn't know the danger he was now in from the moment he became enthralled with Don Spence. Again, all the information I have on these people who committed the crime, I got from Jan Canty's book, A Life Divided. This is because the focus doesn't need to be on the two who committed this crime. Smart. And I know that if Jan shared it in her book, she is comfortable with the information relayed. So Don Marie Spenz was born on January 11th, 1965 to parents Roy Jr. and Henrietta Sandy Spenz. She was their first daughter and later they would have another, her younger sister. The family lived in a small home on Elhard Street, which is in Harper, Harper Woods, Michigan. Roy and Henrietta had married only a year before Don was born, and unfortunately, they had a volatile relationship that their girls witnessed growing up. Roy worked as a machinist, and he was known for filling their home with tension. The girls didn't feel protected by their dad, and neither did Henrietta. So she would leave. She was gone all the time. But by doing that, she left her daughter's home with their angry father to fend for themselves, which pretty much created a chaotic home that was strewn with clothes and ashtrays. It wasn't a clean or nurturing environment, and Dawn followed in her parents' footsteps at a young age. While she was in middle school, she took up smoking. And this wasn't one cigarette like here and there to seem cool to her peers. She was chain smoking daily. Through junior high, she dabbles into marijuana, and by high school, she is taking Valium and a drug called Black Beauty. As far as school went, she got some sort of thrill out of being expelled. She would smoke during class, and once she set her schoolwork on fire. But being expelled was a minor consequence to her, and she learned how to manipulate a situation in her young years. Now, I always say this in our episodes, but you can feel bad for someone's childhood. Like, I can feel bad for Dawn in these moments where, you know, the life she lived growing up wasn't great. I can even feel bad for what she gets tied up in in her later years. I mean, John Carl Fry was literally sex trafficking her. She was a teenager when she started into prostitution and therefore couldn't even legally give consent to be doing these things under John Carl Fry. Yeah. When I don't feel bad for her is when she becomes a part of a scheme for a brutal murder and acts on this terrible thing. Mm. Yeah. It's a really tough one with her because she was made into this by outside sources and examples. But there's a lot of people who live through trauma that don't brutally take a man's life. So by age 12, Dawn tries to take her own life by taking a bunch of her mom's medications. Mm. 
She's sent to her parents to a psychiatric hospital where she stays for six weeks before returning home, only to continue witnessing and experiencing abuse. As soon as Dawn is home, she watches her dad smash her mom's head, cutting it open before threatening to kill her mom. Wow. And that slash has to get 14 stitches in it. And not long after that, Roy and Henrietta decide to divorce, which is probably for the better. Roy had become a raging alcoholic by that point, but he was still granted full custody of his daughters, and Henrietta moves away to Canada with her new boyfriend, leaving her daughters behind yet again, like she did throughout their whole childhood. And it's after her move to Canada that Henrietta actually sets Dawn up to correspond with this man in prison. She's actively encouraging her daughter to talk with this dude because he's lonely. Super creepy. But thankfully, Dawn has one good friend with a good head on her shoulders. And that friend is Dee, who tells Dawn it's not a good idea to be writing back and forth with an adult prison inmate while she's literally still a child. In spite of her upbringing, Dawn was able to maintain good grades. Jan proposes that maybe schoolwork was an escape for Dawn from the life she was living at home. She managed the school bookstore and she held a job at Little Caesars in the Eastland Mall, graduating in 1982 as valedictorian. But in those last couple months of her senior year, she had lost sight of the grades she worked so hard on. She was at the end, so she maintained her status of valedictorian and determined student, but she had just started bluffing school, veering away from wanting an education and becoming more interested in boys and the drugs that they gave her. She was able to easily gain malattention with her brownish red hair, her large eyes and pouty lips. And she was also able to turn on a charm when she could see a benefit for herself. It's right after graduation that she is anxious to get away from her abusive dad. He was refusing to let her use the phone, and he was always hitting her. So Dawn moves from Harper Woods to Detroit with her boyfriend who had dropped out of high school. This is Donnie Carlton. And they move in together, but Donnie can't take care of Dawn. I mean, he is literally a young kid himself, and he just dropped out of school. He made this very clear to Dawn by telling her she had to fend for herself. And she was so young, she also didn't know how to provide a life but she knew she had a way with men. And this is when she considers sex work because her loser boyfriend, Donnie, thinks it would be an easy way to make money. And it's like, okay, well, easy for you, like easy for him because he's not doing anything. I don't think this is an easy or fun life for the woman in it. No. As the thoughts about this work are swirling, Donnie meets this new friend. <laughs> A man much older than the two of them, a man named John Carl Fry. And John was experienced in this area. He told Donnie about how he has already forced previous girlfriends into sex work through threatening them and abusing them, doing things such as strangling them. But John didn't see Donnie as a friend. John actually saw Don as a possession to be taken from Donnie, which is absolutely disgusting. And he knew Donnie abused Don. He was hitting her. So John uses that as his way in with Don when he starts offering her drugs and convincing Don to be with him. 
Dawn wanted out of her relationship with Donnie already. She hadn't ran from her abusive father to then be abused by her live-in boyfriend. Unfortunately, John is no better of a man, but she sees her way out and she leaves Donnie for John. And John tries to show her just how much he can protect her when he threatens Donnie that if he ever tries to get back with Don, he will kill him. And with that, the new couple, Don and John, move into an apartment together and they never hear from Donnie again. Jan writes in her book that this is because Donnie is soon sentenced to prison before he's even 23 years old because he murders Raymond Culver, a church bookkeeper, and he does this by clubbing him to death. Creepy. It's a very sad side note and just some insight into the crowd Don and John are running with. Yeah. So who is this new man in Don's life? This is John Carl Fry, and he's a terrible monster. Jan describes him as a man that other men would cross the street to avoid. He, like Don, came from a troubled family. His dad worked in the big rigs of Tennessee Crude and was often gone with work. But even when he was home, he tried to avoid his family and was always separated from them. So John takes on this role of helping out his younger brothers. He was their protector. Because when their dad was home, he was abusive both emotionally and physically. His crude words and temper created a disdain for respect that lived deep inside of John. By 13 years old, he was drinking six packs of beer and smoking pot. The substance abuse followed him into adulthood, and by 21 years old, John was addicted to heroin. The drug use lands him in prison over and over again. He would always continue that relationship with heroin, but would come to use another favorite substance of his called mixed jive. John used manipulation, extortion, and intimidation to get what he wanted, and he was a big-time liar. He played the victim role, acting like he was this underdog his whole life. And while he was abused by a violent father and made into the man he would become, he didn't have to choose the path he went down when he decided to murder Al Canty. But he saw other people as a means to an end, and he had no remorse about what he would do to get what he wanted. John has this southern accent. He talked slow and disrespectful because he's accountable to no one. Rules, laws, those don't apply to him. John's mom had died by early adulthood. John had dropped out of school and was court-martialed into the army on two separate occasions before being dishonorably discharged and starting into the life of being in and out of the prison system. In 1969, he goes to Jackson Prison. Although he escapes, regardless of the 33-foot-tall barriers and the 12 watchtowers. In 1971, he is sentenced to time in the Indiana Federal Penitentiary. By 1978, he's in Minnesota Federal Penitentiary, before going to Marquette Penitentiary in Michigan. For a decade, he jumps from prison to prison on charges of bad checks, conspiracy, larceny, counterfeiting, assault, and breaking and entering. While he serves his time, John is able to finish high school and he is assigned jobs in prison. Jobs such as a clerk, or better yet, a drug counselor. Which, like, what? No. No. Like, not okay. <laughs> Jan describes John as having snake eyes, an unkempt mustache, and prematurely gray hair with a reddish beard. In the 1980s, just years before Al's murder, John joins this motorcycle club. 
He thinks he's pretty cool, but we know he's not. (laughs) It's while he's in this club that he earns the nickname of Lucky. This comes after he survives an assault from a rival bike gang, and he decides from here to make himself look a little more intimidating. So he shaves his head, and he goes on through the years to get 17 tattoos. One reads White Power, while another reads F the World. Now, the reason I explain John as a monster isn't because he was in and out of jail. It's not because he joins a biker gang. No, it's because he became a pimp, which I explained is literally a sex trafficker. He's making money from helping women sell their bodies. Actually, usually not even women. Girls who are teenagers, just like Don was, forcing them to participate in this lifestyle. And although he posed himself as the protector of sex workers, he was abusive and degrading to them. For example, he's fighting with one of his girlfriends at some point. I'm sure he was being an ass because I think it's pretty clear he's not some gentle and kind soul. And his girlfriend smacks him out of anger. Is that okay for her to hit him just because she's a woman and he's a man? No. But fighting violence with violence is also not okay. And I have a feeling this girlfriend had probably suffered from abuse by John many times before this. Once this happens, John grabs a bat. He's raging at this point, and he starts putting holes in the walls and smashing the furniture into pieces. Oh, and they're not alone. There are people there around them, and three men have to forcibly stop John from causing more damage. He was known for trafficking his girlfriends on the streets, and he had no remorse. This benefited him, and he knew that as long as he could intimidate people, he would never be charged with pimping. Like I said, he thought of himself as the protector of these women, and he got a big head, meaning he got cocky as he noticed his gruff and scary appearance and reputation was causing men to think twice before abusing the girls who worked with him. But then on the flip side, when he felt disrespected by one of these women, he beat her within inches of her life behind the White Grove Diner on 2nd Avenue in Detroit, putting her into the hospital with broken ribs and a ruptured spleen. John had been married and divorced three times through all of these years, and he had five children who he never supported. Which, honestly, good for them. It was probably better that he was not involved in their lives. Yeah. So, this is the man that Don Spence just moved in with. He was he was just an awful person. And this couple would destroy the lives of so many people when they decide they are entitled to take the life of Dr. Alan Canty. Mark Bandeau was a detective in the city who remembers seeing black sores on those who used drugs, the drugs that John preferred, mixed jive. It was sold in tan paper coin envelopes, and it was a substance heavily diluted with lactose powder and laced with some type of rat poison. Wow. It was dangerous, and the detectives at this time knew that every overdose call they went on may not have been accidental. Mark explains that these drug dealers were acting like they were God, making the choices on who lived and who died. If they wanted someone off the streets, they just had to give them a bad batch of the drug. Every time Mark saw an overdose, he wondered to himself if it was accidental or if it was murder. Drugs and homicide were so rampant in Detroit at this time, there was just no way to know. Officer Mark Bandeau was one of the officers that arrested Dawn the first time she was caught soliciting on the streets. 
This was after she was involved with John and she wasn't just working under him. She thought she was in love with him, but she was still a teenager at this time and he was close to 20 years older than her. Back then and still today, the profession of prostitution can be extremely dangerous. Usually, the leading cause of those working in this field is homicide. And Jan points out in her book that those working in sex work in the city of Detroit were at an even greater risk. Such a dangerous job in a city that was leading the nation by a long shot for being number one in homicides. So when Officer Bandeau and Officer Whittington arrest Dawn, they are both taken back by how absolutely beautiful she was. She's a teenager doing drugs and struggling, yet she intimidated them, and they felt really bad for her, as they should in my opinion at that time. She's literally underage and had a bad life leading her to this life where she just continues to be abused by the men she's around. So instead of taking her straight to jail, they really want to help her. So they call up her dad instead. I mean, we know he wasn't a great guy either, but he offers Dawn a place back at his home, saying he can help her get off the streets, and she agrees. So Dawn, her dad, and the officers agree to a meetup location, and the time comes, but Dawn never shows, and she just continues her life trajectory. Although I'm not sure going back to her dad's home would have been beneficial for her either because he was abusive to her as well. So I don't know. But this all gives us insight into the sex worker Al met up with at the Temple Hotel on his 50th birthday, Dawn Spence, and her boyfriend, John Carl Fry. And she was a prostitute. He was her pimp, but they were also like boyfriend, girlfriend. He was a bunch of years older than her, and they were very, very heavily into drugs. In particular, um, they did heroin, and they did um, crack cocaine, and another drug, I forget, that, it'll come to me. It was a drug that was popular in Detroit, but not a lot of other places. And it was made up of rat poison. I probably was a cheap version of meth. Um, I can't think of the name of it, but they were very, very heavy into drugs. My husband never did drugs, but he furnished them with them. That too didn't make sense to me. It's like, why would a psychologist give somebody drugs? That's the opposite of what you should be doing. On December 7th, 1983, Dawn is arrested for solicitation. And this is her seventh arrest for that specifically. To get out of jail, she needs $250 for Bell. But how can she get it when she's sitting in there unable to work? And then her mind jumps back to that doctor. He was so interested in her. Dr. Al Miller. Remember, this is his alias, a fake last name. He had only known Dawn for one week at this point, but he had already paid her for sex three times. I believe at this time, Jan is still at her parents in Arizona because, remember, she comes home on December 14th. Surely, Al might help Dawn get out of this concrete cell. And she was right, because Al was right there with the money as soon as he was asked. And he went on to fund her life. Jan explains in her book that Al was wanting a girlfriend experience out of this whole arrangement, while Dawn simply wanted cash. Even when Dawn wanted to go on a vacation with her boyfriend, I say boyfriend because that's how Dawn considered him, although she was so young, it's he's just pretty much her abuser, but yeah, it's not good. But she wants to go with him to Tennessee to visit his family that Christmas. This is just weeks after Al bells her out of jail. And Al ends up giving the couple $1,000 for the trip. 
A sad side note is that while on that trip, John's brother actually takes his own life. But John's response was cold. He steals his dad's car and then leaves before the funeral. He doesn't want to have to face the emotions surrounding what had happened while in Tennessee. He had a criminal life to get back to. So now they're back in Michigan, Don and John, and Don gets super sick due due to her consistent use of the drug Mixed Drive. She's getting these abscesses on her leg, and by this time, they were getting pretty bad. She finally has them checked out, and it's determined that these wounds are very infected. Amputation of her leg is considered, but Don refuses. And Al Canty is right there to help her. Every time she snaps her fingers for money, he provides. Soon after her hospital stay, Al bites Don a car. And the more money Al gives, the more it's solidified to John and Don that he is their golden egg. Al was always taking Don shopping, buying her groceries, buying her meals, providing her cash for drugs. But then Don is arrested an eighth time for soliciting. Al had bailed her out last time, that first week they met, and so John calls him up, asking if he can bail Don out again. But this time Al is frustrated because what do you mean Don is back in jail for soliciting? He explains to John that he and Don had an agreement about this. She was not supposed to be doing that. So he tells John no, he's not sending the bail money. But Al does go to the jail to see her, signing the visitor log as Al Canty. And I don't know what Al meant by him and Don having an agreement about the sex work, but I would assume he asked her to not continue sleeping with other men for money because he would just give her the money she needed. He would provide her the life she wanted. This shows me that Al was genuinely interested in her, but Don was interested in being paid. And Al, he wasn't just lying to his wife Jan, who had no idea of the things he was involved in. He was also lying to Don and John. We know he uses the fake name Dr. Al Miller, but he also says that he is a widowed man. His wife had actually died from a drug overdose, and he worked overtime to fill up his days at the hospital. Mm. We know this is not true. He's home every night for dinner. At home and at his office, he was Dr. Alan Canty, respected psychologist, educated, married, kind, and encouraging. But on the streets, he was Dr. Al Miller. And the less genuine he was, the more Don and John got annoyed of him. Al probably truly thought of them as friends of some sort, at least Don. He wanted Don to be his girlfriend. I feel that he cared about her. But Don and John were just using him, and keeping up the appearance that they actually liked him was getting hard. It's in April of 1984 that Al shows up at their apartment. They aren't expecting him, nor were they expecting what he was about to say when he asks John how much it would take for him to bow out. John looks a little confused and he's like, hold on. He grabs Dawn and takes her away to talk to her privately. He's like, hey, so Al wants me to stop being involved with you. Do you want to go with him? But Dawn doesn't want to go with Al. She is fueled by her drug addiction, which is fueled by John. And she doesn't actually care about Al. She doesn't want to be his girlfriend. She just wants to continue being paid for her time. So she, of course, says, no, I don't want to go with him. But when John comes back to Al, Al offers him $2,000 and a plane ticket out of town. This makes John think he can squeeze some money out out of Al. So he's like, "Mm, no, how about $10,000? 
before they agree on $5,000, a plane ticket out of town, and a promise that John will never see Don again. They shake on it. But John never planned to follow through with this agreement. His word means nothing. He just wanted to get the money he could out of Al and use it to run off, start over somewhere else. And as John is preparing to gather his money from Al, he tells his plan to the man to a man by the name of Gary Neal. And he asks him, you know what? If you help me with a hit, I will give you half of the money. But Gary declines. He does not want to be involved. Smart. And once Don and John know they will be getting a large sum of money, their drug use is amplified and at an all-time high. But that same month, on April 13, 1984, Gladys calls up her daughter-in-law, Jan, and she's freaking out. She's saying that Al is struggling. He's not talking back to her. Something is wrong. So Jan rushes to him. When she arrives, he's pale. He's not talking, but he is sort of mumbling. And he's sweating profusely. This was scary, and she knew he needed immediate intervention. So she drives him to a level one trauma center where he is seen by a psychologist and admitted into the hospital for a psychotic break. It's when he is spending his days in the hospital receiving treatment that Jan makes some discoveries into a few lies of his. And this is where we are going to end this episode. There will be a part two to this because I just couldn't fit it all into one. Next time, we will continue with the events leading up to Al's murder before diving into the trial and all Jan had to go through with the media and the justice system and how the system is not designed for victims and their families. She says it's a crime-centric system, and sadly, she's right. At the end of part two, we will go into how Jan overcame this trial, what it took for her to talk about her experience after keeping it a secret for 30 years. And she has a special book to announce that will be coming out this year. It's a book dedicated to victims of homicide, recovery. She has used her experience through all of this to strongly advocate for those left behind suffering in the aftermath of homicide. and I'm going to be the best and I'm going to give you the best palate cleanser ever. Did you know that a shrimp's heart is located in, in its head? That's weird because our hearts are in our chest. Bye. Have a great day. We love you for listening. Please share our episodes with your friends and family and onto your social media. And then make sure you're giving us a follow. TikTok at True Crime Exposed Podcast. Facebook is the same. Instagram at True Crime Expod and Twitter at True Crime Exposed, but minus an E between crime and exposed. I'm your host, Kayla Waters. I also research, write, and edit these episodes. My co-host is my amazing mom, Alicia Jenkins. Our palate cleanser giver is Charlie Waters, and all our music was created by Jaden Schultz, who you can find on Instagram at In Pajamas Music. 
I encourage you to visit 1-800-SPEAKUP.org. And this is where you will find the website for Crime Stoppers of Michigan. They're a nonprofit dedicating to, dedicated to empowering people throughout Southeast Michigan to anonymously report information on crime. And you can call them at 1-800-SPEAKUP. And this program will help prevent and solve criminal activity while providing safety information through their Crime Prevention Resource Center. On their website, you can find out more information about their cause, their supporters, their community outreach programs, and you can also get involved while seeing testimonials, what the news and media have said about them. There's a resource center, a donate center, and you can submit a tip completely anonymous online or if you call that number. To support them, you can also join their $5 a month Speak Up Club. I highly encourage you to check this out and donate or get involved if you feel the need to do so.